You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Woman on the Line, one of Community Radio's national women's current affairs programs produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Yan Shirwa. This week, we speak to two people trying to improve the lives of marginalised communities. Our first guest is designer and researcher Joe Shapanska. Joe collaborated with Justice Connect on an interesting project called Seeking Legal Help Online. Their research looked at what happens when disadvantaged groups seek legal help online. In case you don't know what that looks like, I'm talking about websites with legal jargon, complex sentences, links that no longer work, and my pet peeve, outdated legal information. Thankfully, we have Joe on the show to explain why design matters when it comes to accessibility and inclusion. Our second interview is with Jasmine Phillips. Jasmine is the Refugee and Asylum Seeker Community Engagement Coordinator at CoHealth, and today she joins us to discuss the lessons learned during the pandemic and how we can apply those lessons to the vaccine rollout. Stay tuned for that conversation. But first up, let's go to Joe Shabanska. So the report that you were a part of called Seeking Legal Help Online, this report focuses on a group called The Missing Majority. So who is this priority group and why were they chosen as the focal point of this paper? Well, that is a great question. I think we need to backtrack a little because it's actually um, the missing middle is the term that um, a lot of services use, including the legal sector, um, to describe people who are unable to access help um, but are unable to afford a private service. So the missing middle in the legal sector is about people who can't access free legal help because they're ineligible, um, but they can't actually pay for it on their own. Um, And so when you think about who those people are, um, it's usually community members that uh, don't really get thought about a lot um, when it comes to design. Um, I think the ones that we especially wanted to speak to were you know, parents and carers, um, uh, disabled people and people with disabilities and recent migrants and students because we know that they are more likely to need access to legal help but um, less likely to be able to have the money or even the time to um, go and see a lawyer. Does it make a difference as to who is doing the creating? Oh, that's a great question. I think it. I think at the moment there are probably two lines of thinking and a design can kind of play two slightly different but uh, extending roles, I guess. So there's the line of thinking around human-centred design, which is all about um, designing uh, with your community mind. So you might do some research, you might uh, survey people or observe how they use things um, and then design on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the other way of approaching it, which is a bit of an extension called co-design, which you essentially uh, work with the community members you want to reach to design the materials in the first place. And I guess that's something that we um, 
we were really exploring uh, when we were running this project was looking into, you know, are these communities that we want to reach capable of designing with us and do they have an opinion on what might work for them? And the report talks about communities of practice and I had never heard of that and I think that's something you sort of touched on but can you tell us what they do and how their contributions would make for a better online experience? Definitely. So communities of practice are really something that we can learn from um, the healthcare space Uh, and a lot of it is around bringing people together in order to, we call it continuously improve um, our services and to learn together. And so it's kind of uh, an ongoing um, series of either events or catch-ups that you have with a group of people in similar roles or worried about similar things. Um, and you try to kind of play out how you might be able to fix um, services or make adjustments uh, so they keep getting better. Um, so it's kind of partly like a support group, but partly like a working group in order to solve problems. If we could backtrack a bit and start from, I guess, the way the report is set out, which is the self-help journey, obviously everyone's experience is different. What does that look like? Definitely, and I think that's something that we found in this project, which was quite interesting. Um, We not only... Uh, you know, talked to people about how they looked online and what they expected, but then we had them do the search and we observed how they looked. Um, and that just doesn't happen very often. It's kind of feeling elements of usability testing um, and putting them into more of a qualitative research report. Um, and I think most people really started off writing a question, you know, what do I do now that I've lost my job? Or, you know, uh, uh, my landlord is getting me to pay this much money. Is it too much? Um, And so in many ways, the words um, they used to kind of start a search um, really were their main concern and their problem. And that kind of shows us that when we're creating content, we need to reflect you know, the language they're using and the terms that they're using so they can find what they need quicker. And before we look at what makes self-help resources like successful or effective, let's kind of look at what doesn't work. So what are some design issues that sort of turn people off? There are many issues. (laughs) (laughs) There are many issues. And I guess the beauty of kind of working with communities or even testing what you have is you know, they can be quite clear about what's not working for them and each community or each group can, uh, you know, identify different things and um, that won't won't be working for them. I think the big one uh, challenges that people had when looking for help online was that they, um, you know, couldn't understand the language or the labelling, didn't make any sense. Um, There were a lot of dead ends or even loops like you would start clicking on something and then before you knew it, you were back to where you started and with no idea why. Um, When testing with people with disabilities, we found accessibility was an issue. Um, So, for example, if you're zoomed into a web page 300% so that you can read it properly, you might not be able to see the images 
or the other part of the page that's you know out of your out of your reach. Mm-hmm. Um, but mostly people um, really struggled with uh, you know uh, legal resources not being able to explain really clearly what they have to do next. I think one of the great things that we found actually was that during the report we were kind of testing our ideas. So we would put, you know, some really high-level concepts in front of people and get them to kind of prioritise them from things they were most likely to use to least likely to use. Um, And so what was really interesting that came up from our research was that (laughs) flowcharts were really popular. So things that could kind of show you where you're at you know, what you have to do next um, and potential kind of pathways. So that you, things that really that could help you make a decision one way or another, you know, is it better for me to do this or this? You know, is it better for me to talk to my landlord now or go see, you know, a community legal centre or mm. write an angry letter, you know? Um, and so these are things that were really difficult for people to imagine or to see or to understand um, without something kind of more visual than, you know, bullet points or lists of text. Mm. And flowcharts are fantastic because they're really a yes or no answer. So That's something that we haven't seen when we were looking looking for tools online. There weren't many kind of diagrams or maps of the legal system that people could really um, get behind. Um, And I think it's probably, you know, you need a bit of a mix because you've got different audiences. So, you know, for some people, maybe a video of someone friendly explaining what the process is might work for them. Other people, the flowcharts, all they need. Um, And then you've obviously got the other, you know, type of people who will go all the way down to finding what act it is and reading, you know, the 400 Mm. pages of where the law originated from. Um, And so it really is about, um, you know, not necessarily putting all your eggs in one basket, but actually kind of seeing, you know, can I I design this information to be presented in a few different ways? And then I can see which ones are popular for my my cohort that I want to reach. The report started in, uh, was it 2019 or was it 2020, this report? 2020, yes. Right. And, yeah, I mean, look, a lot has happened. Mm -hmm. A lot happened in 2020 and the report was done during COVID-19 as well. And it just got me thinking about conspiracy theories and when people go online to seek information about, you know, COVID news and COVID updates – um, is there a way for people to know what site is trustworthy? Well, it was quite interesting because we definitely um, talked a bit about trust um, when uh, when talking about this project because we would essentially go and test different websites with people and we'd ask them, you know, what about it was kind of you know, making it look legitimate and what types of things were making it feel a bit iffy. Mm. Um, And so not specifically about COVID websites, but definitely people could tell um, what was trustworthy, which for us was really good news, you know, it gave us hope. Um, 
So one thing they would look out for was like the domain name. So uh, depending on their personal background, they would trust either .org um, URLs um, because they were not for profit um, or charities, or they would trust .gov.au URLs because that would help them go, oh, that's a government source. I'm pretty sure they're telling the truth. Mm. Um, the other thing that um, would be a good good thing for them was actually uh, having, you know, really clear information at the top. So answering the main question at the top, um, it kind of made them feel like they're not being sold to. Um, and then one thing that would definitely um, scare them away or turn them off was um, advertisements. So if they saw lots of advertisements or pop-up ads or things like that, um, then that would really lower the credibility of that source for them. Mm, absolutely. I mean, that's how I judge, like, not even legal websites, but websites where I'm trying to learn about a particular topic. And if there's too many pop-ups and advertisements, I'm like, mm, this sounds very dodgy. I don't know what you're trying to sell me, but I'm going to log off at this moment. <laughs> so, yeah, I, exactly. I, I, I definitely hear it. Um, one other thing I want to talk about um, is also time, right? Um, the fact that it takes a hell of a long time to solve legal problems online or to find resources. Do you think that's something that websites should discuss? I think they should well, I think there's probably that's a there's a bit of tension there. So, I think one one thing that people making websites or designing websites should be mindful of is to save as much time as possible. <laughs> um, so, it might not flow as well linguistically. It might not tell everything that you want to say. But you know, it's kind of a point of respect is, you know, getting to the point. Um, and so, <laughs> you know, on one side, it's, you know, you don't want a website um, to tell you a time frame. You want it to save your time. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on the other side, like, definitely people want to know how long a legal process is going to take. But it's also quite scary at the moment, you know, Um and that's something to probably test a little bit more with community members is, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, chasing up your employer who hasn't paid you your wage and you find out that it takes three years to have that resolved, are you going to pursue it? Because in many ways, <laughs> we don't want people um, not, you know, not standing up for themselves and not you know, um, having access to legal help or disqualifying themselves because they know the time frame is that long. Talking about the tension, it reminded me of like when I go online to read articles um, through Medium and if the article mm -hmm. says five minutes, I'm like, oh, five minutes is too long and then I log off. Finally, just having spoken to you, having read the report, I'm developing a true appreciation for the way design processes affect people's access or lack thereof but you know all these design suggestions and recommendations are fantastic but what do you see would be the biggest hurdle for implementing these changes well i think the 
I think the biggest hurdle for kind of implementing a lot, a lot of these changes is, you know, what you're, what you're doing with this program. It's about building awareness that design can be used to increase access. Um, to uh, help people understand information. Um, you know, if you don't know it's available and you don't know how to use it, then you're not going to. Um, and that goes for using design in the legal sector, but it also goes for using legal self-help tools online. <laughs> mm. um, so there's a lot of role around advocacy and building confidence um, in using tools, working with communities, um, you know, partnering with organisations in order to make things as accessible as possible when designing online. And on community radio stations right across Australia, you're listening to Woman on the Line. We hope you enjoyed our chat with Joe Shapanska about the Seeking Legal Help Online project. You can read the research in full by going to justiceconnect.org.au. That's justiceconnect.org.au. Now, let's hear from the Community Engagement Coordinator, Jasmine Phillips, about co-health and lessons learned during the pandemic. Let's begin with you. You are a Community Engagement Coordinator with co-health. Firstly, who is co-health and what is an engagement coordinator? Um, so co-health is a community health organisation in Melbourne, in Victoria, um, and we provide health services across lots of different areas, including general health, um, GPs, allied health and dentistry, podiatry, a whole list of um, general health services. And I guess I work in the refugee health team um, and my role is around engaging with people from refugee and asylum seeker backgrounds and supporting them to um work in their communities to navigate health and wellbeing and support their communities through advocacy and community development projects, but also to feed back to us as an organisation around what their needs are and, and collaborate to see how we can work together to achieve better mm. health and wellbeing outcomes. And I'm glad you touched on engagement because that goes to my next question. So during the height of the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about multicultural communities being difficult to engage and being on the margins and so on, but there was hardly any discussion about how they got there and why certain communities would even be reluctant to speak to the health sector. Mm. When it comes to supporting marginalised communities, what are some things that co-health is mindful about? So I'm talking in particular language and how communities are framed. Yeah, so I think you're, you're absolutely right. A lot of multicultural communities... Um, can be hard to reach by mainstream organisations. Some of the um, strategies that we use in the refugee health team and at CoHealth more generally is working with community leaders and bicultural workers themselves to to inform us of what the community needs are, where the community is located, and then to lead work themselves in reaching those community groups and working in partnership with them to to respond to their needs. So often by having a person who's trusted in the community, who's known, who speaks the language, understands the culture and the complexities of what of the challenges that communities might be facing, they're better able to meet the community at where they're at and respond to their needs. So working with bicultural workers and, and community leaders in 
in community engagement has been a really important part of our community engagement strategy, especially during the pandemic. And I love that you said trust because that is what it boils down to. People are less likely to, you know, confide in you and to put their concerns and their interests in your hands if there's no trust. Co-Health does, as you mentioned, a lot of collaborative work. And one program that I think is very exciting, and I think it's still happening, it's called the Health Concierge Program. Tell us about these initiatives and also the benefits of collaborating with community. Yeah, so I guess part of collaborating with community is it's about being location-based and working with community members um, in areas where where there's a need. And the Health Concierge Program grew out of the, the second lockdown where the government um, locked down the government flat, the apartments, and there was a need to engage with community there in order to share health messages, ensure that they understood what was going on and to support them through that difficult time. And so the Health Concierge Program was developed by engaging people who lived in the flats, um, who had good relationships with the residents there, who were able to um, act as a bridge, a cultural bridge and a guide and an advocate for the community members living in the flats to collaborate with CoHealth to help us understand what their needs were and also for us to help the community understand the public health messages and and what services we were offering in terms of testing and referrals and supports in in community health as well. So it was was a really great initiative. It's still going on at CoHealth and, yeah, it was really about developing a community-led response that drew on the strengths and the skills and the knowledge um, of the residents in order to better support them in a community-led response. We're in 2021 and things have cooled down a bit and Melbourne is slowly like finding its feet. But what can we learn about the pandemic, so lessons from the pandemic that we can apply to the vaccine rollout, the COVID-19 vaccine rollout that is... Yeah, good question. Look, I think the key thing that we took away from the pandemic is really the need for organisations to have long-lasting, sustainable, trusted relationships with communities um, and the ability to reach those community groups um, when a need arises, but also an ability to hear from those communities what it is that they need from us. And I think that if we make assumptions about what it is that the community needs, we're often missing um, the nuances or the the specific um, needs of those groups. And so having trusted relationships, but also workers from those communities who are able to develop really deep and meaningful community engagement strategies that enable us to work in partnership with communities, to respond to their needs and to build responses um, early on in the prevention um, early intervention stage before things get so bad that we're we're rust- we're hustling to to make a response and I think by having those um, sustainable relationships and the trust with communities um, that's harboured through um, bicultural workers and 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 other um, workers from those communities we're better able to meet meet the community where they're at and, and respond in ways that are culturally appropriate culturally safe meaningful relevant. Um, and, and inclusive. And that is the end of our show this week. 
thanks to Jasmine Phillips from CoHealth and Josh Spanska from Justice Connect. Woman on the Line is one of Community Radio's national women's current affairs programs. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender-diverse broadcasters from 3CI in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. We welcome your thoughts or comments on today's show, so send us an email at womanontheline at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Ripley Kavara. We finish today's program with a song by Sampa the Great featuring Mwanja Tempo called Inner Voice. Don't pass on love, don't pass on love, don't pass on love Lost my vibe. I'ma bring it back cause I got my tribe. Could've settled down, but I'm down and I'm living. Could've stayed low like calm, but the villain. But I got the keys and the keys to me, so I'm free. Let it be now, all is forgiven. This how I lean now, this how I rock. This way it be when your soul ain't locked. This how it be when you take control. Looking to the future and it's paved in gold. I will never lose myself, wish me. All my happiness and energy. Stuck up in the clouds and lifted up. I'ma let it go, let it be, let it be, let it be, let it be. Who are you? Sampa T-E-M-B-O F-R-E-E-Y-N-J-O Contemplating why oh yo Concentrating why aren't you? I'm observing my own ghost And I'm singing my own notes And I'm singing my own Bye.
And I'm back for the rise. Could've lost hope, but I dropped my pride. Could've stayed low when I lost my stride. Could've let go to the pain inside. Could've, but no, I got up and I'm living. Could've stayed low, but I'm up and I'm driven. Gotta let it go when you're sore, cause you know it can slow how you go when you wait. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.